Welcome to Hearth and Soul. You're listening to episode one. I'm your host, Angela Torres Kakun. I'm a foodie, food nerd, opera singer, and the food manager and preservation queen for Spoken, a cafe in the Ravenswood neighborhood of Chicago. I have extensive experience in food service, and I think I have this sort of passion that that sits within me that the more I learn, the more I want to share. And people started asking me questions. And the more questions I got and the more questions I was answering, the more I realized that maybe I should put it down for others who don't know me and can't ask me in person. I came to Chicago to study um, vocal performance at Roosevelt University, Chicago College of Performing Arts. I came to be an opera singer, and I actually thought that I would never work in food service again when I got here um, until I needed a job and realized that um, that was all I was qualified to do, which worked out fine because that happens to be my second passion. So I get to do both of my passions and get paid for it, which is awesome. Not a lot of people can do that. Um, And I stayed in Chicago because the opportunities um, vocally are just endless as far as storefront companies and then and there's a lot of opportunity to create in Chicago that there's not in Michigan which is where I came from so I stayed here for just the creative aspect really and that I made some really great friends and I really I just love the city life I love it so today we're tackling questions from our listeners or rather questions from friends and random Instagram followers since this is our first episode, so we haven't got any listeners yet. But I hope that all of you will continue to follow us. Um, So our first question is, do you have any neighborhood composting recommendations? Composting is awesome. Way back in the day, people did this regularly. Whatever your food waste was, you just buried it in your garden, and that would make your garden grow better this wonderful cycle. Um, We've put a label on it now for composting. And in the city, it's kind of, it's kind of a difficult thing to figure out. You can't really like have your own box of composting worms on your back porch. Well, some people do, I I suppose you can, Um, but it's kind of messy. It's not really easy. It's a little expensive. So I do know of one amazing company. It's called Waste Not Compost. Um, It was started by, uh, well, he was a kid at the time. Uh, Liam Donnelly is his name. I think he was 15 years old when he came up with this idea. Um, So he started this company as a way to redirect food waste from the cafe that he was working at at the time. Um, And it's now grown years later into this huge company. Um, You can find more information at wastenotcompost.com, all all together, all lowercase letters. They are Chicago's first zero emissions compost collection service for homes and businesses. And I'm going to really quickly go through all of the neighborhoods that they currently service, um, but you can get this also on their website. Albany Park, Avondale, Bucktown, Downtown, Edgewater, Gold Coast, Irving Park, Lakeview, Lincoln Park, Lincoln Square, Logan Square, Mayfair, North Center, Old Irving Park, Ravenswood, Ravenswood Manor, Roscoe Village, Streeterville, Ukrainian Village, West Town, Wicker Park, and Wrigleyville. So that's that's a lot, and they're growing all the time. So if your neighborhood wasn't listed there, you never know. In the next month or so, they might add it. Um, so keep checking back. They will do uh, home pickups for $10 biweekly pickup or $12 for a weekly 
sorry, that's backwards. Weekly is $10, bi-weekly is $12. Um, and they take care of everything. They'll provide you with a bucket. They'll provide you with the bags. All you have to do is put your waste in there. And then on the day designated, you put it out and they'll pick it up and bring you a new clean bucket. So they do all the cleaning, all the pickup, and then they in turn turn that compost into um, stuff that farmers can use locally and the local um, urban gardens and stuff like that. So Liam is awesome. Uh, the company is awesome. We use them at uh, Spoken. So they do businesses and farmers markets as well. And I highly recommend them. If you're looking to compost, definitely go to their website. You can actually sign up right on the website. It's really easy and inexpensive. So I keep a little composting bucket in my kitchen um, and it can get a little stinky sometimes. So Usually my recommendation is uh, make sure you have, if you're keeping it inside, get a small one with a filter. Um, they're pretty inexpensive. You can buy them on Amazon. They sit on a counter. They even look really nice. They come in ceramic or silver. Um, they come with filters, usually double filters, and then you can buy replacement filters as needed. Um Sometimes they'll fit in your fridge, which honestly, if it's real hot like it's been lately in Chicago, you probably don't want that sitting out even filtered on your counter. Although I haven't had too much of a problem uh, so far, if you don't have air conditioning, it can be an issue. So my recommendation in that case would be get a big old bowl or some kind of vessel that you can fit in your fridge. Keep your scraps in that covered and it's less likely to stink up your apartment and then dump them into your bucket when you need to. If you're able to keep your bucket outside, if your landlord allows that or you live in a house that that's cool, the bucket comes with a lid. So you can put put your scraps outside, put the lid on it tight, and then refill your bowl in your fridge and, you know, continue as such. And if you're getting weekly pickup, you know, it's it's not that long that it's sitting around. So that's generally my recommendation. I'm really lucky in that I can just take mine to work. So I can take it every day or every other day if I need to um, and just dump it in the big compost at work. Um, but it's the same company. It goes to the same place. So that that is what I know about composting. <laughs> um, so our next question, uh, I got a question about produce. Where do I buy my produce? So I'm going to preface this by saying I'm kind of picky about purchasing groceries. Um I don't get everything in one place because I tend to know that some places are less expensive than others or some places have better products than others. So I shop at a lot of different places depending on the time of year. Um, I live really close to a Cermak produce, which if you live near one of those, I think there's like five or six of them in the city, maybe more. Um, they have an amazing selection of really inexpensive produce fruits vegetables all kinds of beautiful stuff um not a lot of organic choices unfortunately but if you know if you got to save some pennies that is the way to go you can fill up a couple of really large grocery bags for less than twenty dollars and eat like a king for you know a week and a half or whatever um stanley's is also a really great option though i do find that sometimes their produce tends to go south a little quicker it's already kind of on that verge. Um, but if you know you need a lot of stuff and you're going to use it quickly, Stanley's is an awesome option. Or if you live right there, that's awesome. Um, honestly, sometimes I go to Trader Joe's. Uh, I am a singer as well. And sometimes when I'm in the middle of a se busy season, like Christmas or Easter, 
Um, I, I don't have time to prep a lot of vegetables, even as a cook. I just don't have the time. So I will go to Trader Joe's and get things like their um, cruciferous blend that's already chopped up kale and Brussels sprouts and cabbages. It's all chopped up and in a bag for you. And all I have to do is dump it in a pan. And it's awesome. Um, and their kale, sometimes I'll just get bags of kale there because it's already chopped up and prepped and ready to go. And sometimes you just need that. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in getting a little help when and where you can. Trader Joe's also has really great deals on frozen vegetables, I think. Like, if you need frozen green beans, that is the place to go. They're so cheap. And they're usually really good quality. Um, Farmer's markets, obviously, it is farmer's market season. And I'm really upset with myself that I haven't actually been to one yet. Um, But that is oftentimes in the summertime, I will go at least once a week. I'll gather whatever is really looking really good. And I find that if you go every week to the same stalls and you make friends with the farmer, you're more likely to get a deal at some point when they recognize you. They know what you like. They know what you're looking for. I have uh, this one guy at the um, Ravenswood Farmer's Market that we buy stuff from for the shop, actually. He knows me on site. And will always, whether I ask him or not, give me a handful of something to eat right then and there. Oh, you got to try these raspberries I just picked. Or, oh, have you tried this variety of cherries? Here, you got to try these. Here, try them right now. Eat them right now. He's just lovely because he knows me and he knows what I'm looking for. So if you make friends with the farmers, you're going to get a deal. And I find the best way to make friends with the farmer is ask them, if you've never met them before, hey, what are you proud of this week? What looks really good to you? What is your your favorite thing that you grew this week? Chances are they will light up instantly, tell you what they are most proud of. I remember one one year it was um, this farmer grew these little patapan squashes. And he was like, these came out just gorgeous. Look at, look at how beautiful they are. He gave me two for the price of one, two quarts for the price of one. Oh, you need more here. He just dumped them in the back. So make them feel proud of what they do because what they do is really it's really valuable it's really important and i think oftentimes they're not their opinion maybe isn't asked they're just seen as vendors um but these are the people that grew the food or picked the food or both so ask their opinion make friends with them and you're more likely to get better deals and better product that way and then if you've got too much freeze it i definitely fill up my freezer every summer with berries and green beans and peas and chopped up squash and just whatever I can get my hands on. If you can buy it in bulk, buy it in bulk and freeze it because then you'll you'll thank yourself come January. Um, CSAs are also really awesome, though I do know, at least in the city, they can be a little bit expensive. Um, not that they're not worth it. They're totally worth it because basically what you're doing is you're buying a share in this farm. So you're buying a piece of the farm. Well, the farmer needs to be able to do what they do and make a living at it. So it makes sense that they charge what they do. Um, But if you can't afford that pricing, definitely just go to the farmer's market because you're more likely to get be able to get what you can afford that way. I also just signed up for Imperfect Produce. I haven't gotten it yet. They had a delivery. I, I only just signed up because their delivery time wasn't didn't work for me before, but they've expanded it to a time that works for me now. So I should be getting my first box next week. I will report back what I think, but I'm really excited because I don't really care that much about what my vegetables look like as long as they taste good. So we will find out, but I'm excited. Um, 
part of the second part of this question was um, what are some rare fruits and veggies that I think people should try next? I don't know that I know a lot about rare stuff. We are in the Midwest after all. You have to know what grows here. Um, I can tell you if you go into the grocery store and you're looking at fruit that doesn't grow here. Um, I really like star fruit. It's a lot of people don't realize you can just chop it up and eat it and it's really delicious. They're a little pricey because they're not grown here, but, um, it's a nice treat. Um, passion fruit is probably my ultimate favorite of all time. Also, they don't grow here, so I don't buy them because that's not a thing. That's not a seasonal thing here, but every once in a while I will get one. They can be a little pricey. You do have to add sugar. Just putting that out there right now. Don't scoop into a passion fruit and eat it straight up because it's kind of, they're incredibly tart. Blend it with some sugar and some water. You've got an awesome juice drink. Um, but as far as vegetables, so my thing is not so much rare vegetables, but vegetables that maybe people have forgotten about that are kind of really awesome. Um, right now I'm really into garlic scapes. Those are in season right now. They're, they're these weird curly green things like they're curly like a pig's tail and they're green but they taste like like mild garlic they're really amazing and you can just chop them up fresh and put them into whatever you can blend them into a salad dressing you can blend them into a pesto you can throw them on a salad you can saute them with your stir fry or your omelet or whatever um and right now is their season so you can probably find them at farmers markets in csa's places like that where you can get local stuff that's in season um green garlic is another one green garlic looks like a giant green onion but when you cut into it it's like hard in the middle but it's actually it tastes garlicky that you definitely have to saute but it's really good and it's just a little bit milder than an actual clove of garlic but again you can saute it up with your omelet with some goat cheese, which is how I really like it. You can throw it into a pesto. You can, you know, do all kinds of things with it, like you would with garlic. But it looks like a really huge green onion. And I don't mean huge, like the bulb is huge. I mean, like really long green onion, um, like something out of a movie. Like they look really weird, but really delicious. Also in season right now. Um, and then things that people have forgotten about, like rutabagas and turnips turnips are awesome. I don't know why people think that they don't like turnips because they're just amazing. And right now in season, you can get these tiny little, um, what are they called? Harukai, I think is how they're called. They're, they look like they're the size of a globe radish and they're pure white and they're really kind of sweet and barely taste like what you might think a turnip tastes like. And they're wonderful, just chopped up into a salad or um, chopped up with radishes. I made a, a turnip and radish slaw at the shop the other day that was really delicious with a little bit of citrus juice and some olive oil. It's really good. We put that on a sandwich. Or you can um, just saute it on its own in a little butter and they become this really like beautiful buttery side vegetable. They're really good. Turnips are awesome. Um, and that there are more radishes than just the globe ones that you see in your normal grocery store. So if you're at a farmer's market, you're going to see these like long fingery radishes. Those are French breakfast radishes and they're kind of spicy. They're also really good sauteed 
and then they lose their spice, but they become really sweet. And then there's watermelon radishes, which are really good pickled and they're really beautiful. They're just really pretty. I just love to cut them open and just like stare at them lovingly because they're just so pretty. Um, But these are all like things that you can find in season right now um, that maybe I I recommend just go to a farmer's market, look around, look for something that maybe you haven't had before that you don't know what it is. Ask the farmer, what is this? What do you do with it? How do you cook it? And then take their advice and try it out and see if you like it. The worst thing that can happen is that you're not a fan and you give it to somebody else. Not a big deal. You know, somebody else will eat it, I'm sure. Um, So yeah, that's what I have to say about produce. (laughs) Our next question, um, this was from somebody on Instagram. And they just said, does food ignite something within you? Wow. So food to me is sort of nostalgic it's sort of to me it's sort of a connection to the past so every time I bake a pie I'm not just connected to my grandma but I'm connected to my great-grandma and my great-great-grandma and hundreds of years of women baking pies for their family previous to that people that I don't even know from 100 years ago that maybe I'm related to ancestors you know it's that sort of connection Every time I create a new recipe, I think about where my knowledge came from, that it came from generations and generations passing down trial and error and what they learned. And just being an amalgamation myself of my mother's knowledge and my grandmother's knowledge and my other grandmother's knowledge and putting that all together along with what I have learned and read on my own, it's this, to me, it's this almost visceral connection. You start thinking about where did this come from? Who was the first one to think about this variety of corn? Who was the first one to pick this vegetable and think, hmm, I wonder if this tastes good? Who was the first person to decide that that a hamburger should be grilled? You know, like just these, these interesting questions that pop into my head from the past. And food history has always been a big, a big thing for me. I like to, to track sort of where different foods have come from and how they've traveled over time and how different cultures have influenced the different cuisines that are all over the world right now. And it's just sort of this this whole connection that I don't think that we really, we don't really think about enough anymore. Um, I really feel like if we just, if you just stop when you're cooking something, just stop for a second and think about where this process came from who did it before you where did you learn this knowledge there's an intimate connection between you and if you're reading a recipe the person who wrote that recipe the person who wrote that recipe is sharing a bit of themselves with you not just words on a page so i would say it food definitely ignites something within me it ignites this whole human connection that i think we take for granted or we forget exists as a whole um and hopefully that is something that we will continue to delve into with more and more episodes of this podcast our next question has to do with citrus fruits can you preserve citrus fruits for winter use well um first of all we live in the midwest so not a lot of citrus fruit growing around here um so it's not really an issue i've ever had to deal with having so much citrus that I need to preserve it um 
So honestly, I've not done it. Besides making marmalade, which I make jams for a living. So I think that just goes in that realm. Um, And that is one way to preserve citrus, make a marmalade out of it, you know. Um, So I did some research. I I went on on the YouTubes and I went on the interwebs and I looked at some, read some old cookbooks. I I collect antique cookbooks and just looked through some things. And there's a couple different ways that people throughout history have preserved their citrus besides marmalade. Um, The most basic is to pack it in sand or straw or some kind of dry medium like that. Whole, whole oranges, whole lemons, whole limes, tangerines, what have you, in, in big crates of sand or straw. And then they would keep those in their cellars, their root cellars. And that is how you, would ho- you could hold that. In fact, I saw somewhere um, a guy tested this. He's a homesteader and he tested this out for four months. And he pulled an orange out and he ate it. And he said it still has the same texture, still has the same juiciness. It still tastes great. It's got a little bit of a brown spot in the middle, but other than that, it was great. And that was four months sitting in a bucket of sand. The only thing is that we don't really have cellars anymore. So if you have a basement, you could try it as long as your basement is dry, um, because the key is to have it in sort of a dry, cool spot. And apparently you can also do this with potatoes and onions. So if you grow those kinds of things, if you have an actual house and you don't live in an apartment like most of us in the city here do, um, and you have a basement, you can give that a shot. I mean, I, honestly, I've not done it, but that's how it was done for hundreds of years. Um, I've also seen, um, so then to take it a step further, instead of preserving the entire fruit um, like that, you can then process it somehow. So besides a marmalades, you can slice it up. I've seen um, slicing and freezing. So you can freeze big slices of your oranges, your lemons, your limes, and then just pull them out as needed and use them in whatever application you need. That's probably the simplest way for most of us to deal with things, especially if you want to preserve the juice and you want to use that in your cooking in sort of a fresh tasting application. Freezing it is probably the best way. But you can also take those slices and boil them in a sugar syrup. So just a a very little bit of sugar syrup where you have more sugar than you do water. So like if you had three quarters of a cup of water to a cup of sugar and then boil them just till they're, you can usually tell when they're candied, they sort of take on a different look. They become more translucent and then you let them dry and cool and then you can keep them in your fridge in an airtight container for months and months and months. But they are candied then, so they're sweet. So another option is salting. And this, uh, this I first learned about this from Lynn Rosetto Casper, who used to do The Splendid Table, which was a famous food podcast, is a famous food podcast through, um, oh, I'm blanking now on the radio, but you foodies know what I'm talking about. Um, she talked about preserved lemons that came out of a West African and Moroccan tradition where they use a lot of preserved lemons. In fact, they use more preserved lemons than they do fresh lemons in their cooking. And the way that you do that is you take your whole lemon and you quarter it, but you leave the end piece on so that it's the quarters are still attached. And then you shove a couple tablespoons of like um, coarse salt in the middle of those quarters. And then you shove the whole lemon into a jar and you just shove as many salted lemons into this jar as you can fit. 
and then you close it up and you wait a week and it will produce all this juice you can then sort of shake up give it a shake every day or so and that's it and then you can just use them from then or you can leave them sit and preserve longer um and those they use those in a lot of um what is that it's called a tangine i think they use that's the preserved lemons that they use alternately you can also slice the lemons and layer them with salt and sugar in a jar and it's a similar process except then you've got a little bit of sweetness if you don't want to to counteract the the salt um either way when you use the lemon you're going to rinse it off rinse all that salt off you don't want to eat all of that but that salt is a preservation a way of preserving things so basically salt sugar that's really all you need and then the lemon juice takes care of the rest um so that was what I found as far as preserving citrus fruits. Not that we have a whole lot of use for that in the Midwest, but you know what? Give it a try. I've heard that preserved lemons make really great Christmas gifts. I've never done it. I might try it this year. We'll see. Okay, so for our last question, I'm being joined by one of our producers here, Maureen Smith. Um, this is kind of a heavy hitter, so we're going to try and tackle this together. Um, here is the question as I have it. They write... I know that food is something that is a beautiful thing that brings people together culturally, but how can you repair a relationship with it that has been severely severed? Which is a great question. It is a great question. It is a a difficult question to answer. And I'm here just because I want to preface that, of course, you know, we are not a mental health podcast as we are not mental health professionals and i'm here to provide some context to that question because the person who asked it is seeking mental health advice from professionals we're here to comment on the purely the food side of it Mm -hmm. um which is what this person is looking for and Mm -hmm. i'll i'll elaborate because they they sent me a follow-up saying Like, in our society today, food is the friend and enemy at the same time. And for some of us, food becomes a crutch, a comfort of all sorts. Are there any methods we can try to kind of mend what's broken? I'm talking to my therapist about this, but like concerning the food itself. Like, I've been cooking a lot more, thinking of the ways I can fuel and growth from what I eat, or grow from what I eat, and how it impacts me and the environment. So... The first thing I want to say is that I think it's awesome that this person is cooking a lot more for themselves because I really think that knowing exactly what goes into your food and not not in a controlling way, not that, you know, you need to control everything, but that that aspect of of love and self-care for yourself is so important. And you're not going to get that by going somewhere else for someone else to cook your food if you are cooking your food you are committing an act of love for yourself and i think that's really really important um especially when you're trying to heal a broken relationship with food you need to bring more love to that party uh and cooking for yourself is number one the best thing that you can be doing so i really love that that this person is doing that um I do want to, even though this person is uh, seeing a therapist, I want to throw out a couple of authors that I feel like they're not necessarily directly related to food, but they are related to how we sort of reflect internally in order to deal with underlying maybe confidence issues or other issues that sort of relate to how we deal with food. Um, I really think that Brene Brown, Gretchen Rubin, 
and Jen Sincero are all really amazing authors. Um, Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass, totally was one of the most amazing things I'd read in a long time when I read that book and really sort of helped me mentally go through some things. Um, That being said, I do know how difficult it can be to enjoy, especially like cultural cultural meals and cultural foods. I am I am Hispanic. Um, when you're worried whether or not those foods are good for you or bad for you or or should you be eating that, it, it's it's a mental mind game. Um, so I, I do have a little bit of experience with that because in the end, those cultural foods are part of who you are and they can be comforting. Um, so I do have to say flat out, I don't personally believe that a total restriction or elimination of any one particular food or food group is a good idea unless you need to do so for health reasons. For example, um, I do have Hashimoto's, um, which is an autoimmune disease that attacks my thyroid. So unfortunately, gluten is a big, big problem because my body can't tell the difference between the gluten molecules and the thyroid molecules. So it just destroys them all, which means that my thyroid gland is half dead because of years of eating gluten. I didn't know. Um, that, with that being said, if you can eat gluten, you should eat the gluten. I don't think that people should cut it out because they think it's healthier. It's healthier for me. What is healthier, healthier for me may not be healthier for you. Um, but having to that diagnosis and then also on top of that the diagnosis of a a genetic mutation that means my cells don't process b vitamins and folate correctly so i have to eat more of those things and take more supplements than any person normal person would um and by normal i mean without that mutation um what is normal anyway really um so that I had to rethink everything. And this was already this was only a few years ago. So, you know, I've been in food service for 20 some years now and I at that point I had already been in food service for like 17. So r- had to rethink every approach to food. And not just, you know, what society tells us is health, quote unquote healthy. Um because oftentimes that's not correct that's that's swayed by by money and lobbying and and various organizations whatever we can go into that in another podcast but for me my personality type meant that i needed to delve in myself and do the research and find the people the doctors and the biochemists and the people who had written about this stuff who could explain it to me in a way that i understood i spent probably a year just reading everything I could get my hands on, listening to every podcast about nutrition that I could find, um, and figured out how to revamp what I eat that works for me. Knowing that what works for me doesn't necessarily work for somebody else. So I think the fact that this person is cooking for themselves means that they're willing to take that step to to really know themselves. So doing the work in order to figure out what makes you feel good. So if you're looking if you're looking at your food as fuel and you're looking at this this piece of kale for example and you eat this piece of kale raw. Well, how do you feel in 3 hours? How do you feel in 5 hours? How do you feel the next day? 
Me, personally, I'd f- I would feel terrible. But that's because raw kale has a detrimental effect to the thyroid. If you feel awesome, then great. You've just found something that fuels your body, that loves your body back. So eat that kale, man. Make a kale salad. Do Make all the kale salads. Like whatever, it has to almost go food by food. So unfortunately, I had to do it in a really sucky way where I had to cut out almost everything for about a month. No dairy, no caffeine, no wheat of any kind. Actually, the only grain I could have was rice. And I could only have some vegetables and I could have fish. And that was it for about a month. And that was how I then afterwards reintroduced food by food to figure out what my body likes and what it doesn't. For me, I don't do well with tomatoes or nightshades. They don't love me. And I and I know it. I feel it. I feel it. So you really, it comes down to figuring out the best way for you to be in tune and actually listen to what your body's telling you. And I know that's super cliche, like listen to your body, but it's true. You have to pay attention. For some people, that means uh, writing a food journal. I didn't actually have to do that. Um, well, let's just say I didn't do it. I probably should have, but I didn't. <laughs> My doctor suggested it and I didn't do it. Um, maybe someday I'll, I'll get into that. I'm not great with journals. But for some people, it really works, especially people who have feel like they need a certain amount of control. And when suddenly you feel like there are things that you can't eat or there are things that you shouldn't eat or you're feeling really uncertain about how you feel your body, writing it down can be invaluable. So if you write down everything you eat in one day and then the next day you don't feel so well, well, then you've got a record to look back and know what made me feel bad. Maybe it was this. Well, let's not eat that again and try something else the next day. Or just, it just gives you a better way to sort of pay attention. That being said, there, for some, myself in particular, um, I used to I used to do like Weight Watchers, which makes you mm-hmm. like record everything you eat. Mm-hmm. And I started to develop kind of some shame around not doing that. Right. Um, like if I ate something and I didn't record it the next day, I would feel really, really bad about myself. Right, right. So I think that it's important that you that like in addition to listening to what your body is saying, that you also listen to kind of what your brain is telling you Mm -hmm. and like how these processes of um of kind of like relearning how you can love food that you also are at the same time relearning how to love yourself yes yes and you know it may be that that's why i didn't do the journal because i do part of me is is a very controlling sort of type a person and so i think i knew that trying to be that controlling would be too much for me it's it's a fine line yeah it's the same reason that i don't i have a scale now but Mm -hmm. for years i didn't have a scale and the reason was because i would get obsessive about it yeah and and every day you know a a woman's weight can fluctuate anywhere from five to ten pounds within 24 hours yeah but i would get neurotic about it i was the same way which is why the scale had to go it went in the trash and it wasn't until many years later that i finally was like okay i think i know my body well enough that i can do this and now i have a scale and i maybe get on it once a month just just as like a checkpoint 
to see where mm-hmm. I'm at or if I have a doctor's appointment coming up or something, you know, just just to have the knowledge, but it doesn't it doesn't invade me. So you're right, it's a very fine line between knowing that this is going to help you or that it's going to hurt you. Um so I do think um who is it? Is it Gretchen Rubin who wrote writes about the um the four tendencies? And this is why I find uh, her writings really helpful because the four tendencies have to do with the kind of personality and, and they're okay, they're generalized into four and there's a lot more to it than that. But if you know straight up that you are, for example, a um, a rebel and you're going to every time somebody tells you you should do this, you're going to do the exact op- opposite. That's something that you know about yourself. So when you know that going into this kind of sort of rediscovery of food and, and self-care, that's a really valuable tool to know that, oh, well, if so-and-so tells me to do this, I'm not going to do it. Or they tell me not to do this and I'm going to do it. So that's how you can sort of figure out what's going to work for you and what's going to help you. Or if you know that you're a, oh shoot, now I'm forgetting the term, but um, basically somebody who like you need outside and, and I'm, oh, an obliger. That's what it's called. I'm one of these people where if I am sort of beholden to somebody else, somebody else is holding me accountable for something, I'm more likely to do it. So if if it's a food journal, that's just me, right? I'm probably not going to do it. Or if I do it, I'm going to do it so much that I'm going to become obsessed about it. And that's not okay either. So just having that little piece of information knowing as far as self-care for me knowing that I'm an obliger means that I have to take extra care in saying no I have to take extra care in setting aside time for myself I have to really really think about that because otherwise I just I won't I'll always constantly be doing for other people um so I would I highly recommend that book, The Four Tendencies, because it just gives you a little insight into what kind of personality you have. And maybe then you can go from there as far as knowing whether or not a food journal is going to work, whether or not, I don't even know, different cookbooks are going to work. I love the idea of reading cookbooks. I love that. Um, I often read cookbooks from just from cover to cover for fun, you know, like novels. I don't actually cook the recipes. I just read the cookbook because I'm a nerd like that. Um, <laughs> but sometimes it can be really fun if if it's a cultural thing, if your food is cultural. Like for me, there's a lot of, there's a lot steeped in, in the Venezuelan culture. Venezuelans are very proud of their food, of their culture, of their music, of their heritage. So I, I read up on that, you know, and then think about how that connects you to your ancestors as opposed to how that food might be detrimental to you, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's it's a heavy question. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm glad just because, like, I've recently been through my own kind of, like, unraveling food shame where I ultimately decided that any sort of any sort of like diet culture where I'm endeavoring to lose weight just doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like I was I'm glad that I was able to jump on here just because like, you know, it's it's important to recognize what kind of relationship with food works best for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't I'm I'm not one that prescribes into any specific diet culture either. I don't. 
I, I really tend to get, you know, my hackles get up when I when people start <laughs> spouting propaganda about any specific diet. Yeah. I don't like the dogma behind specific diets. Mm-mm. It it doesn't do anybody any good except for make people more obsessive. Yeah. And again, one thing doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And one way is not the way for everybody. It's also not one way is not going to save the planet or destroy the planet. It's it's very much there's a lot of squishy in here. There's a lot of uh, you know gray area, and it can be hard to to buckle down and do the work. But I think at the end of the day, if you're just if you focus on you and what your needs are and what your body is telling you, and know that when you put food in your mouth, it's it's an act of love, and not and I'm not talking about like that piece of cake or that entire cake that you ate. That's that's not what I'm talking about that comfort food has its place it really does and and i i think everybody should be allowed to enjoy that piece of cake on their birthday or that pie on the fourth of july like you shouldn't feel shamed about that but on the other end of things you need to know that what you're putting into your body is going to do your body good and if you look at your food in that way which is what i had to relearn not just putting food in your mouth that tastes good because we all want to do that all the time right Mm -hmm. but putting food in your mouth that's actually going to do something for you for me sometimes it's thinking about okay well i know that this sardine yes i eat sardines they're good (laughs) don't judge (laughs) but i also know the reason i started eating them is because this sardine has an incredible amount of amount of calcium and an incredible amount of omega-3s that my body really needs right now so i'm gonna eat the sardine and i'm gonna put a crap ton of onions and dill on it and it's gonna be delicious and my body's gonna love me for it And then there are times where I look at, you know, a big salad like I had for lunch today. I'm like, you know, I really need these greens because these greens have a lot of different vitamins that I'm needing right now. I need this zinc. I need this magnesium. I'm feeling kind of run down. I need these things. So I'm just going to mow on this huge salad. And I, it doesn't even matter what else is on it. You know, I put some feta cheese on it. I put a whole crap ton of ranch dressing on it whatever (laughs) but i ate the greens right so maybe looking at your foods as as the nutrients and and i don't mean you need to get super like scientific about it because at the end of the day food should feel good but if you know that what you're putting in your body is going to make you feel good because of the specific nutrients that are in it it might be easier to wrap your head around that and Mm -hmm. to help yourself fuel your body the way that you're trying to Hmm. if that makes sense yeah no and i think i think that that's you know as good a place as any to to wrap up that wrap up that old q a yeah awesome so the last thing that i want to do um this is going to be a repeated segment if if you guys like it and uh this segment will be called what's in your pie hole (laughs) basically i want to know what people that i'm talking to whether it's guests producers like i have here we now have daniel johansson on with us hello um (laughs) i want to know what you guys are like really digging right now you know everybody goes through phases of things and what what is your thing daniel what is your thing right now what's in your pie hole yeah, so I had to think about this a while. You warned me f- f- before. I did. So I'm glad for that because th- this is this is will be the kind of thing I would like stew over and, and frustrate over and be like, oh man, <laughs> I picked the wrong thing. But I feel pretty confident 
that like the thing that I'm really on right now is just fried cauliflower. Mm. I've never I, I like uh, recently I got back into cauliflower, um, but I always kind of grew up on my aunt made my grandmother's who who made her mother's who made her mother's who made her mother's recipe mm-hmm. for fried cauliflower pancakes Ooh. and it's really simple like it's like stupid simple it's just like a milk an egg and a pancake batter of mm-hmm. some kind so I, the thing that i had to figure out was how to do that vegan vegan right um so i've been using egg replacer and okay. almond milk original almond milk no vanilla right but I, I like getting the i like the original over the unsweetened almond milk because i okay I like that that unsweetened almond milk has that like slate yeah but i use i cook a lot with almond milk mm-hmm. I, in fact i use it that's the mo- i don't drink almond milk really i mostly just use it for cooking because it okay. for whatever reason it does a lot of like bechamel type stuff like it does yeah. this really well, like right. baking really well. Nice. Um, so yeah, because the other thing too is like I know that like it's a really big health fad right now to be like, oh, I'm gonna take everything and replace it with cauliflower. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and I, I think that's fine. I, but for me, it's it's not so much that. It's specifically taking cauliflower and treating it as like the star. Like yeah. Putting it on the bed of fried dough that it deserves. Yes. <laughs> like That and I've been really into um, baking, like roasting. Or frying cauliflower like florets and uh-huh. basically eating them like and like make giving putting them in sauce that I would put. Chicken oh yeah. Wings. Oh yeah. Um, which you know I've done those buffalo. I've done those peanut butter teriyaki, which are just like Ooh. stupid good. Yeah, I love good. a good peanut butter sauce. Yeah. I love those. Um, have you tried those cauliflower gnocchi at Trader Joe's? I don't know no. if they're vegan or not, but they're uh, really yeah. good. That sounds super interesting. They're really good. And I obviously it's part of the fad, right? But I like to see this particular fad as just people are coming back to a vegetable they forgot. Yeah. <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. I feel like cauliflower is um is is really getting its like it's it's really getting its victory lap. It right really now. is, and it's about damn time. Cauliflower was yeah. great for the longest time. Cauliflower was the only vegetable I ate. Oh, for real? Yeah, when I was a little <laughs> kid, I did not like vegetables. Wow, but I loved dipping cauliflower in ranch dressing. Oh yeah, mm. you can't really go wrong with that. I would eat like there would be a vegetable tray at family events, and Maureen, little Maureen, would plow through the cauliflower it was the broccoli for me yeah really Mm -hmm. Mm, yeah i couldn't do the broccoli although i i think that it was ranch dressing that got me into of course yeah (laughs) ranch dressing for life speaking of ranch dressing that is what is in my pie hole right now i we got garlic scapes from the csa at work and i threw them i pureed them with um buttermilk and then I made a ranch dressing out of it. And this stuff is so good. Oh my God. I'm surprised there's any left for the actual customers because <laughs> I'm eating all of it. Like, I need to make some at home. I don't often make ranch dressing at home because I just don't go through that much salad dressing at home. I live alone, but at work, I make big batches of stuff like this. And I'm just like, I'm the only one eating it. And that's okay. That is, <laughs> that is okay. We just got another CSA today. And it had a big bunch of two bunches of garlic scapes and i i told my boss you know what i'm just gonna go ahead and turn these into more of that ranch i hope you don't mind and they were he was like well there are other things no no i think i'm just gonna make more of that ranch because that's really what i what i want (laughs) good right that's important it's important what i want is important yeah um so what's in your pie hole currently in my pie hole is um irish tea 
Mm. Um, I've been, I, I, yes, the past couple of days I've been like on the brink of feeling under the weather. Ugh. Um, I was like really shivery and achy the other night and I like my go-to, so like cu- culturally my family is Irish and German. Okay. Um, my mom's side really leans into the Irish and my dad's side really leans into the German. Mm. Um, and so growing up, um, Irish tea was kind of like a calming sure. thing that that was deployed very frequently. <laughs> like whenever I was home home from school sick, mm-hmm. I would make myself Irish tea and eat a lot of vegetables. Mm. That was like my, that's what I did when I was So sick. this is like the tea that's like super strong, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, you can taste, you can chew on the tannins. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So the way that my family makes Irish tea is essentially you put the tea bag in the in the water and then you walk away and forget that you made tea and then you come back and it's perfect (laughs) so like yeah um the way that i've but like i I, we don't have a microwave and so Uh like i can't reheat tea so what i've been doing to mimic me forgetting about it is that i'll put the tea bag in the water and then i'll do a chore Mm -hmm. and then i'll come back come back to it Mm -hmm. so like today what i did was i put the tea bag in the water and then i started to fill up the bathtub to take a bath mm-hmm. and then once the bathtub was full i brought the tea Went back in to your tea me. exactly do you put uh milk in your tea i put honey because i'm a shitty vegan <laughs> and um <laughs> no you're not come Stop. right out and say it <laughs> i i purchased and ate honey um and then what i in in the ideal in an ideal world i would have put oat milk in it because it's really uh, nice and creamy. Yes, yes, it is. Um, but uh, we don't have oat milk, and so I just put a fuck ton of almond milk in it. <laughs> because I was thinking you could, if you left your tea, you know, you put your boiling water on it, and you're leaving it to sit while you go do something else, and you come back to it, and it's not as hot anymore, well, then you can heat up your milk. I could do that. On the stove and pour that in. That's smart. I'm just saying. I No, mean, that's smart. It's It's an extra step, but... But for me, it's honestly, because I like tea so much, much, it's really hard for me to forget that I made tea. <laughs> well, I have a question. Yeah, this is my question. Um, that that measurement, time measurement, is very similar to me with making pasta. But I realize that that's not because... Because you can easily overcook pasta. Mm-hmm. I just have made a lot of pasta. Like, I, I my family is very Italian. And so, like, I've been... I've made probably, like... I've made pasta over like three thousand times, probably. Yeah, you just kind of know. Like that. You just kind of know. Well, yeah. I, I put it on to boil, mm-hmm. and then walk away, and then come back, and it's like, oh, that's ready to stir, and then walk away, and then come back, and it's like, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, you <laughs> just kind I, of innately know. Yeah, so that's what. Do you, do you feel like that's the tea thing? Is that, or do you think it's literally that? Can um, you over? Can you over brew tea for an Irish taste? Is no, what I'm asking. You cannot. <laughs> Honestly, no, I'm saying, like, if you do, then you just put it into a bigger mug and put more milk in it. Like, like, I'm, like, because, um, I know for, like, I can tell, I kind of have, like, an internal tea timer Mm -hmm. where, like, I'll, I'll put the bag in and I'll walk away and I'll walk back and I'll be like, I'm going back too soon, but I don't care. Ah, yes. It's not quite ready, but I'm gonna drink it anyway. Exactly. But, like, I, and then, but then, like, if I, if I even slightly forget about it and then I'm like, oh, and I'm walking back and I'm like, 
and I'm like king of the like king of the world. <laughs> I'm just walking back and I'm like, this is gonna this be is the best. Well, little little known fact maybe, and I don't know if this pertains to Ireland as well, but in the east end of London, um, the reason that the tea is so strong now traditionally, because back uh, during the days when you know the poorest of the poor. How, where did they get their tea from? Well, they couldn't buy it from the tea house. It's too expensive. Mm-hmm. So what they got were penny packets. And the penny packets were the dust that would oh. collect on the floor of the tea house as the leaves were being processed into the, you know, the more fancy. Oh, wow. Um, so all of that, that is like the strength of the tea, right? Wow. It's like the the finest, it's like the finest grind of coffee, right it's going to be so strong because there's it's ground so fine yeah that would get swept up and put into these little packets and sold for for just a penny yeah. and that was the the poor people in the east end of london that was what they drank and so it became this thing because it was so strong and then you had to put a fuck ton of milk and sugar in it right in order to get it down but that became the thing that's that's now what they just what they do but it wow. came from this whole like poverty stricken area I can't decide if I think that it's it sucks that the tea shops were like, here, peasants, take take our mm. floor sweepings, or if I think it's fucking rad that they had an option available. I think, for me, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. It's kind of like, I really wish that you could have made, like, the high-end tea available for everyone, but it's really cool that, A, you didn't waste yes. what was left, yeah. and B, that you made this available to people who would not be able to get the other thing it's the same with um candy and and cookies so in the east end of london you could go as children you could go to the the cookie shop or the bakery and get the um the ends or the bits Mm. so basically they were the the little bits of cookie crumbs that ended up at the bottom of a tray or whatever and they would put them in a paper cone and wrap them up and kids could buy them for a penny that's so yeah there was a bakery around the corner from where i grew up that had um that sold those that they would be like in bags and they were like mm-hmm. brownie bits or like muffin bits like or, the extra bits yeah yeah yeah, they yeah. Were, yeah i i would go i had like a rotation of um small businesses that i would that i would frequent as an elementary school student <laughs> uh when i would uh choose to not purchase milk at lunch mm-hmm. and instead i would save up my quarters to buy stuff and in the rotation was i would get a bag of of bits <laughs> that's awesome yeah i love that All right. Well, I think that's about it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, Make sure to find me on social media. You can find us at Hearth and Soul on Facebook, or you can find us at Hearth and Soul blog on Instagram. Um, And please be sure to find uh, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Radio Public, Google Play, and rate and review us as well, because that would be really awesome and make us all really happy. And just so you know, Hearth and Soul is produced by Scopy Magazine. Head over to scopymag.com to check out literally all the things. They have podcasts, articles, videos, and even more to come. And that's it. See y'all next time.